We talked about competitive advantage many times so far. And each time we try to understand one of its features to better understand it so we can better formulate strategies that produce competitive advantage. In previous chapter, for example, we handled the question of how to measure competitive advantage. In this chapter, we basically learn what the generic ways we can take to gain competitive advantage. Fast forward the end of this chapter, there are three generic paths for creating competitive advantage, what we call generic strategies. All generic strategies take their roots from the, uh, from the simple formula, V minus C, value minus cost. The first generic way to generate competitive advantage is to reduce C. The second generic way to generate competitive advantage um, would be to increase V value. And the third way is to do both at the same time. It sounds pretty straightforward, but as you may guess, it is easier said than done. Gaining competitive advantage requires being an outlier. Of course, you don't want to be on this, uh, on this negative side of the distribution, the losers clubs, um, or the companies with negative profits. But you don't want to be on this section of the distribution as well. This is just so boring. Everyone has an average or a normal profitability. You just guarantee your survival if you have normal profits, but not prosperity. You earn profit margins that many other firms earn. The superiors live in this part, being in a positive outlier, having above normal profits, having profit margins above the ones that normal guys earn. But how do they make it? They either have a better cost structure, present better products and services to their customers, or manage to do both at the same time. But how are you going to decide which part to aim for, right? Which one of these three business level strategies to pursue is a joint product of industry and firm analysis? Take the example of Trader Joe's as you're already familiar with its industry and firm dynamics. Take on all the big players in the US supermarket industry, Walmart, regional and global chains such as Stars Market or Aldi, or drug stores, including CVS and Walgreens, how does Trader Joe's handle with the challenges of providing a unique service to their customers? How to make value propositions different than competitors? Simultaneously, how to deal with the cost position relative to competitors? Trader Joe's picked a very successful strategic position that embraces both differentiation and cost leadership, what we later call integration or blue ocean strategy. The challenges of large and strong suppliers such as Procter & Gamble or Unilever have been eliminated by relying on minimal product variability uh, in store and buying from regional suppliers whose products are packaged and marketed under Trader Joe's label. In short, the choice of business level strategy is not only shaped by the internal firm level capabilities, strengths, or weaknesses, but also have these capabilities be used as a remedy or be leveraged for improving the value propositions or cost structures. As it is pretty obvious from our previous discussions that there are two main ways to position your firm in the industry, 
You may focus on the value part while managing the cost reasonably, or you may position yourself as a company who delivers acceptable value at a lower price. Or while trying to do uh, both at the same time, lower the costs and higher the value, you may find yourself stuck in the middle of both strategic positions. Or if you manage this process successfully by creating an innovative and novel way to deliver value, you may become a good example company who successfully implements Blue Ocean strategy. The competitive scope is related to the customer profile you identify as a target. Again, turning back to um, Trader Joe's example, its competitive scope was narrow in the sense that the company's customers were highly educated and environmentally sensitive customers who can be classified as middle-income consumers. There are, these are generic business level strategies, but why do we specifically say business level? It implies that there's another level that we haven't talked about yet, and won't be talking until chapter nine, corporate level strategy. So there are uh, levels of strategy. Business level is one of them. It is about making a strategic choice between a cost leader or a differentiator at the very basic level within an industry defined by a single product or a single market. Corporate level strategy, on the other hand, pertains to multi-industry strategic choices and actions. You will have plenty of time uh, we will have plenty of time to talk about these corporate choices, but for now, to make things simpler and clearer, let's compare business and corporate level strategies of Unilever. Unilever operates in many industries that range from food to beauty products. In each product category, strategic decisions consider positioning the strategic decisions consider positioning the company's value propositions and cost structure in a single business whether it be competing on price or quality terms in beauty products, for example. But at corporate level, Unilever makes decisions that improve the company's strategic choices in various industry contexts. Shall we leverage our brand in school supplies, for example? Shall we acquire our raw material producers who operate in downstream industries of our value chain? Or would it create positive um, profit opportunities if we enter African market? These and many more questions are at the corporate level. Therefore, business level uh, strategies are concerned with questions of how to compete within a particular business, while corporate level strategies care about questions on what businesses or industries to compete in. This is one more level. There is one more level, which is the functional level. Functional level is about actual operations to put the strategy in upper levels into action, marketing, finance, logistics, human resources, and the like. And this figure depicts the hierarchical relationships uh, between these three levels of strategy. Corporate level is at the CEO and the board of directors level. Where to compete is the relevant question at this level. Business level um, is at the divisional managers level, food division, beauty products division, or Africa or Middle East division. And at this business level, you ask how to compete in this industry or geography. They report to the upper level and hence are expected to be consistent with corporate culture and vision and mission. Functional level is on the other hand is more practical. 
engineers who are expecting to be the manufacturing operations managers at the Rotterdam class factory, for example. I'm just making up this example, but you get the point. Although in this chapter, we are vividly focusing on the business level strategies we mentioned before, all these levels of strategy discussion is, um, is, is so that you become aware of the interactions between and among these levels. If it is operationally not feasible or economically not sensical to open a store in a location identified as attractive by the business level managers, uh, maybe due to lack of effective communication among levels of strategy, then you may find yourself in a position where you implemented a corporate and business level strategy insufficiently lucrative. Okay, let's go back to where we were supposed to talk in detail in this chapter, which is generic business, generic business level strategies. Let's start with differentiation strategy. As I already mentioned earlier in this video, differentiation strategy is about focusing on the value part of the, uh, of the equation. You try to increase the perceived value of your products and services in the eyes of customers through unique features you add to your products and services. This way, your primary aim is to increase the reservation prices of customers, namely their willingness to pay, so you can charge higher prices for your products. Although any product and service can be positioned in cost or value terms, some products are inherently more suitable for differentiation strategy, um, think about Apple or luxury products such as Gucci bag, Mercedes car, or Hilton hotels. These products and services provided the companies with uh, many alternative futures to have their products stand out among others. Also, there is a reputation or branding aspect that can add value to these products. A Xiaomi smartphone, for example, may do exactly the same thing. Uh, as an iPhone does, uh, even it may be performing better than an iPhone, but iPhone is iPhone. Even if Apple is producing, to me, exactly the same phone with a different series number on it, it has a brand that it attracts people from all ages. Also, you can follow such, uh, such a strategy, um, differentiation strategy by focusing on a narrow group of customer needs and preferences. For example, Ducati or Ferrari. They target performance addicts that have thousands of dollars to play with. You may not be familiar with the other brand here in the, on the slide, which is Mont Blanc. Um, it's, uh, it's an executive pen brand uh, and it targets mostly business people and specifically executive level business people. The lowest price item in their list is $1,000. $1,000 for a pen may be insane to me too, or most of the people, but it's seen as a status symbol, just like a Cartier Swiss made mechanic wristwatch. As competitive advantage can be achieved as, uh, as long as economic value created is greater than that of, uh, that of competitors, it is easier to see how firm B and C in this figure gain competitive, competitive position with service company A. Between B and C, it is clear that B has greater advantage uh, due to its lower cost structure compared to C. In the end, B and C, as you may readily recognize uh, from the figure, um, are advantageous in the price that they can charge to their products. Their customers are willing to pay higher 
um, to to the products of B and C compared to the price they would be willing to pay for A's products. So perceived value for B and C's products are greater in this case. To have your product and services stand out and increase the uniqueness of your customer's experience with your value propositions, you may have several tactics to apply. You can add features to your products. When iPhone came along, all other so-called smartphones became almost a dumb to customers. They had plastic keyboards, not user-friendly interfaces, and operation systems with less practical use. iPhone introduced breakthrough features that make um, phones smarter and more user-friendly. Customer service can also be a nice addition to increase customers' uh, perceived value. Um, as we discussed during Trader Joe's case, good customer service is one of the key elements behind customer satisfaction and happiness for the company. So a third way to differentiate your products can be to, um, can be to create complementarities between and among your products. So complementing products are, are the ones that can be used with your product and improve the customer experience and the demand in both products and services. Take iPhone, iWatch, and other iThings that work together in harmony so you become conveniently connected to all without any trouble while shifting from one to another. This is, uh, this is an example of a, uh, of a complementary product. So um, let's talk about cost leadership, cost leadership strategy. And actually, we'll be talking about cost, cost leadership strategy a little, a little bit longer than the differentiation strategy. So let's start uh, with its basics. Firms that have chosen to deliver acceptable quality at lower prices um, acquire, accumulate, and orchestrate resources that are focused on reducing cost structure through efficient manufacturing and service offering skills. We will talk about the dynamics of how to achieve this in a little bit, but first think about the suitable products and services for cost leadership strategy. Consider corn, coffee, oil, or other commodities that leave less room to the producers to differentiate their products. A corn is a corn, or how can you make wheat um, or oil very different than the, than the oil of your competitor. Of course, there's always a way to make it different, but still compared to a bag uh, or an apparel product or a technology product, it presents little, uh, limited options to add features, complementarities or services. Again, these examples do not necessarily say that these products or services cannot be differentiated one way or another. It is just um, telling us that they are more suitable for cost leadership strategy. Branding is another thing you may care, uh, you may not care with which airline carrier you travel from one location to another if the service is standard. If there is a direct flight at the same time from A to B, the only thing that you would care is the price, not the carrier's name or brand. So suitable industries for cost leadership strategy are standard commodity-like products and services that give you less room to play with the product features to differentiate the product. And branding is less important or even unimportant for these products. 
Okay, we are already familiar with this example, even might have got bored of it, but it's, um, it's more efficient to exemplify concepts with companies that you are familiar with. You can say Trader Joe's is doing both cost leadership and differentiation, but when you look from the angle of cost leadership efforts of the company, it is focused on a very narrow group of people in the beginning. As it is read in this slide here, its customer profile is easy to describe with certain characteristics of the customers. They are intellectuals who are looking for healthy products to buy, but not willing to pay the price in the Whole Foods range. Let's say um, they are penny-pinching intellectuals. Firms that keep their costs low while offering acceptable value gain a competitive advantage on their cost leadership strategy. We already got this. So how do we show it with the value cost bars? Here, firm B and C have competitive advantages. They have lower costs compared to company A. Firm B is even doing better than C because firm B creates greater value in the eyes of customers who are willing to pay more to the B's products so B can charge more in turn. How do you drive your costs down while providing acceptable quality is the relevant question here. And there are three broad ways, three um, drivers of cost leadership strategy, uh, access to lower cost input products. Second one is reduced unit costs due to economies of scale. And the third one is reduced unit costs due to learning and experience curve effects. So these are the three drivers of cost leadership strategy, how to lower down your cost structure. And we will be explaining each in detail in a minute. First is um, lower cost input factors. So you may be privileged in accessing low cost input factors such as raw materials, labor, capital, or anything that enter into your um, manufacturing or service providing processes. Let me talk about Gulf Airlines and how they achieved to be visible in the US market. It was around 2015 when three airlines, three Gulf Airlines, Emirates, Etihad, and Qatar Airways, all from the Persian Gulf, started offering higher quality services at lower cost to break into the US air carrier market. The legacy carriers have long been squeezed at the time domestically by low-cost competitors such as Southwest, Frontier, Spirit, and others. Although most of the future growth is in Asia, the United States remains the world's largest air traffic market, still holding on, uh, on to one-third of all business. What was their plan to penetrate? What was the Gulf Airlines um, air companies' plan to penetrate highly competitive, uh, low-priced US market. First, they had access to government-led financial resources. So one of the biggest stockholders of these Gulf airline companies was their government. Second, they located their online customer services as well as IT departments to low-cost locations like India. So they... Uh, generated access to lower um, labor, lower cost to labor. Last but not the least driver for a cost leadership strategy um, to be implemented in the US market is that they obviously 
live on top of an oil ocean, equipping them with cheap fuel, which is one third of their operation costs. Thanks to these three advantages or three drivers of cost leadership, Gulf airline companies successfully penetrated the US market with more choice, more routes, better service and amenities, and most importantly, lower prices. So um, the second um, driver for cost leadership strategy is economies of scale. And I'm pretty, uh, pretty sure that US senior students have seen this concept many times in your Bentley life before. Um, as the name reveals itself, when your scale is large, you will economically benefit from this large scale because as you produce more, you can spread the fixed costs over a larger output, or you may afford employing specialized systems and equipment. In the end, your per unit costs decrease as output increases. But as it is evident from the figure here, scale economies are not infinitely rising. As you increase your output, in other words, as you produce in larger scale, after some quantity, which is Q2 in this figure, scale economies disappear and are replaced with scale diseconomies. So this is where we say bigger is better, but when bigger becomes worse, as the firm is now too big to manage and control, we say that firms experience managerial diseconomies. This is because as the production process becomes larger, managing it involves more complex and challenging issues that negate the benefits of scale that the firm was enjoying before this quantity too. Also when firm gets bigger and bigger, the bureaucracy naturally tends to increase which increases the, increases the costs of managing the firm and reduces the benefits of flexibility and innovation. In brief, what you need to know about economies of scale is that it's one of the means that a firm can drive its costs down up until some point. Managing and benefiting from economies of scale is critical to successfully implement cost leadership strategy but you need to be careful about the optimal scale that provides you with scale advantages because after the optimal output level is reached, your firm will not be able to benefit from economies of scale. Worse, after that point, your scale will start hurting your efficiency and in the end, your strategic position as a cost leadership, uh, cost leader. Another method uh, you can use to drive your costs down to pursue a cost leadership strategy, namely the third cost driver, cost leadership strategy driver, is to benefit from learning by doing and process innovation. Although your textbook separates these two effects, namely learning and experience curve effects. In order to make it simpler, I want to talk about both of them in, uh, in regards to their most critical and common terms, experience accumulation, or the idea that practice makes perfect. The very idea behind these two effects is that as you practice a task, you do it better, and by exerting less effort or paying less attention, like driving. Remember how hard it was when you first learned driving, right? Now it's like a reflex more than a deliberate action. 
the outcomes of learning being better, faster, more effective, less attentive are actually rooted in individual cognitive systems. Remember, we talked about Kahneman in, in chapter two while we were talking about two systems of thought and decision-making biases. Then we made this con uh, conversation in chapter two. We left uh, one more thing to discuss in this chapter, which is intuitive expertise. As a brief reminder before we talk about intuitive expertise, there are two systems of thought, system one and system two. System one is gut feeling or intuitions, where you make decisions automatically, unconsciously, but your decisions are more prone to systematic biases and uh, mistakes. System two, on the other hand, comprises rational thinking with more scientific methods, and also it's deliberate and more accurate, but system two decisions are slow. Between these two systems, system one and system two, there is that hybrid mode, which is intuitive expertise, which we are interested in in, in this uh, part of the lecture. You can make an intuitive expertise, when you gain intuitive expertise, you can make automatic and fast decisions undeliberately as in system one, but your decisions will be accurate as system two. Because when you repeat a task for a sufficient time, this repetition helps you recognize patterns of the task you perform, so you can automatically detect the correct response to it, and it will be, and it will be fast. This is where you're now an expert on this task. You perform the task with less effort and deliberation like system one, but you're still as accurate as you perform it by utilizing system two. So it's in the middle. But to be able to develop intuitive expertise, first rule is that you must be performing a task that belongs to a highly valid environment, meaning that the availability of trustable cues regarding the nature of the situation and the task should be high. For example, um, a chess game. Although it is very complex, um, it's a very complex board game, it presents a highly valid environment for players because although many, the moves that can be taken are finite. Or take driving, um, our simple example. Driving is in a highly valid environment as well, where even AI machines now will be taking over the truck driver's job. The task has predictable patterns and cues to be recognized when performed many times in a lifetime. Okay, the second rule for developing intuitive expertise is time, time to expertise. So the performer of the task in order to gain intuitive expertise must have the opportunity to practice the task many times so the person recognizes the cues provided by the highly valid task environment. We need adequate opportunities to learn the consistent patterns and the regularities of the task in that highly valid environment. When applying um, these two rules to businesses and tasks related to them, I would say that some businesses are not suitable for benefiting from cost reductions due to learning and experience curve effects. Take election forecasting companies. Can they rely on cost reductions because they predict the outcomes better and better as nations go to elections? 
there are patterns behind election results. However, it's not as highly valid environment as an automobile manufacturing business. Marketing departments are less appropriate for cost reductions as well compared to manufacturing and logistics departments. A market specialist is less likely to predict human behavior as accurate as a production engineer predicts outcomes and challenges of a production process. For venture capitalists, for example, task environment is again highly uncertain. Each entrepreneurial idea that they may invest in is unique and may not show patterns to learn from. Which startup is more likely to be successful than the other? This is a harder question than the one you ask for a manufacturing process. Being aware of the differences between task environment and the performance opportunities to learn the task helps you formulate strategies accordingly. You may focus on cost reductions emanated from learning effects for tasks with highly and highly valid environments and high chances of practice. But you should not rely on cost reductions from learning effects if the task is not suitable for interior expertise development. As two of the three drivers of cost leadership strategy, both economies of scale and learning curve effects try to reduce, reduce, co uh, reduce unit costs, right? But in what ways do they differ? Again, they both try to reduce, reduce unit costs, but they differ somehow. First of all, learning curve effects come with time. You learn by performing or observing the task over time. So there is an accumulation story there for learning effects to kick in. For economies of scale effect to kick in, however, launching the scale suffices. Whenever you launch the equipment or the factory, for example, you start experiencing output increases as with unit cost decreases. Second of all, Learning effects, as I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, may not occur if the task is not available to practice in a highly valid environment, but you benefit from economies of scale regardless of the characteristics of the task that you perform. It does not matter if the task is complex and does not have any patterns to recognize. It is the scale that matters, not the task itself for the economies of scale. But why is it important to make this difference in the first place? How would this change your policies as a company? As a cost leadership strategy follower, you can rely any, some combination or all of these drivers of cost reduction. However, the policies can be different based on which one or ones you rely on. For example, if you're relying on the learning uh, curve effects to reduce unit costs, then the people who put this learning into effect gains essentiality. So it is better to keep these critical people, critical employees, if you're following, if you're relying on learning curve effects for cost reduction. So HR policies to retain staff is important in this case. But if you're benefiting from economies of scale, then your priority to keep scale benefits going is, is to retain the market share. Um, sell whatever quantity you produce. Otherwise, output will either be below capacity or produced amount above demand has to be stored bringing inventory costs to the cost equation. 